The title of servant or handmaiden is one of the only titles, probably the only title in the Bible you earn. You don't earn the right to be called the righteousness of God. You don't earn the right to be called an apostle. You don't earn the right to become a son or daughter of God. Those are bequeathed or bestowed upon you by faith in Jesus' name and by faith in his salvation. But once you are born again and you become the righteousness of God and you become a child of God and you recognize a calling upon your life, the title you aim to earn is that of servant and handmaiden. And the Lord oftentimes in the Old Testament would say, Behold now, have you considered my servant? Or behold the servant of God. Behold the handmaiden of the Lord. And that meant you were living your entire life for God. And we have said that a lot of Christians today don't earn that title. They don't deserve that title. They're barely born again. They're more like stepchildren. <laughs> God's adopted them, but they don't hardly come around and they don't, definitely don't serve him. They serve themselves and then they cry out to God when they need bail money. We don't want to live like that. We want to stay close to the Father and never need bailing out of anything. We want to be used of God to help other people bail out. So we're looking at this subject of handmaidens because we want to help the, the, the women of God, the ladies who are our sisters in Christ, to earn the title of servant or the female form as handmaiden. And this is a critical message for our culture. And the conference I just came from, we talked about this issue how our culture is so self-serving. Our culture, everything about the Western culture, specifically the American culture, has to do with self. Everything about the American culture is aimed to let you live with reckless abandon, with no restraint. Everything we do in America is big. We have that saying, go big or go home. We go big, then we go home, then we go big some more. And so it's a culture that does not teach the Bible anymore. It's a culture that mocks the Bible. It's a culture that looks down its nose at anybody that wants to live for somebody other than itself. Housewives and homemakers are made fun of horribly. If a woman, a young lady today says she doesn't want to go to college, she just wants to have babies, she's looked down her nose upon or frowned upon. And so uh, it really is quite a shame. So we want to come back and look at the Bible to see what God's culture has to say. That's not to say there's anything wrong with getting education and, and, and leading the nation. We certainly need that. Deborah was a tremendous leader. Bathsheba was a tremendous leader. Phoebe was a tremendous leader. Uh, but what we want to do is see the heart of these women of God and realize that uh, it's, it's good to be a servant. It's good to live for something bigger than yourself. And let me also add this before we look at these last three ladies. If you're going to be a handmaiden of the Lord, you've got to first learn how to lead yourself. You've got to first be able to take care of your little realm, especially if you're a single woman. And if you're a mother raising girls, you need to give them home training and teach them how to serve and teach them how to bring out that gift that's in their life. Uh, one of the ladies my wife has sat under said, never, let, never do for your children what they are totally capable of doing themselves. And never clean up after your children. Teach them to clean up after themselves. Children from the time they're two and three want to help. You have to harness that. If you have children, your house should never be a mess. If you have children, your house should never be a mess. I understand there's playtime and things get drug everywhere. And then we're done, everybody pick up. If you have children, your house should never be a mess because you're teaching them to carry their own weight. And therefore, they're all, it's like having a bunch of little robots that just constantly clean up. Amen. Teach your children, especially daughters, how to be homemakers. We, we're seeing in this current generation that even the women who have that ability in them don't know how to pick up after themselves. I, I've, I've only been in a girl's door maybe twice, maybe three times in college. 20 years ago, they were always immaculate. They smelled beautiful. You, you know, they, they, were, they were just prestigious. You go to the men's dorm, 
they needed a woman's touch. I mean, it smelled like B.O. and gas and beans and who knows what else, beer and just trash and dirty underwear. Underwear just abandoned down the hallway. I don't who loses underwear between here and the shower and then just leaves it. Nobody claims it. it has your initials in it. <laughs> what we need is to raise up, again, a generation of women who can help build the kingdom of God. And so that's why we've written these lessons. Let's look at this third lesson. Many mighty handmaidens of the Lord have advanced the kingdom of God. If it weren't for the mighty handmaidens of the Lord, I don't know where the kingdom would be. These are the praying mamas, the praying grandmamas. These are the Deborahs that lead in private. These are the women that come to the house of God for prayer when the men are too lazy to because, um, you know, men. And these, these are the women that have basically done the work when the men wouldn't show up. And it's unfortunate. It's just the way it is. Our friend uh, Jeff Schroeder, when he was part of a tremendous revival in the Ukraine in the early 90s after the wall came down, they had revival. They saw thousands of kids get born again. And he said uh, the church was in such an infantile state in the Ukraine that his elders were like 20 and 22 years old. He said the only old people we had in our church were the old Russian women who had been born again and found Pentecost before the wall went up, before World War II. And they had kept the faith underground for 60, 70, 60 years, the fires burning. And when the wall came down, they came back to church. But it was only women. The men never came back. He said, the only age leaders we had, and he himself was in his mid-20s, he said, were the old grandmas, no grandfathers. They kept the fires of Pentecost and Christianity going through in Ukraine under communism for 60 years, or I guess 50 years. And uh, where are the men? We don't know, but those handmaidens of the Lord and their babushkas showing up praying and helping the young leaders march forward. We need the women of God to rise up and to continue to serve. The names of many we'll never know until eternity. I remember a story I heard in college. I don't remember where I heard the story. There was a missionary, and uh, I want to say he was in Indonesia or Asia somewhere, and got very sick and was near unto dying, and uh, had a miraculous recovery. And in the miraculous recovery, he was sick, and this woman, he was an American missionary, this woman entered into his room and laid hands on him, and he recovered. And he remembers waking up and seeing this woman, but she was Hispanic. And he was so, you know, how does this woman know who I am? How does this woman know how to, I'm in need? And after she prayed for him, she disappeared. And so he woke up and recovered from the sickness, and he got to praying and fasting. He said, Lord, who, who was that? What was that? Who was it that came and prayed for me? And the Lord said, that's a Mexican woman I have interceding for you every day. I brought her here to heal you from Mexico that's like translation but again a story of a handmaiden who was faithful to pray for a man she didn't even know probably in Spanish and in tongues if it's a Mexican woman and yet God supernaturally used the handmaid there's so many stories about these handmaidens doing so much work in private and we'll never know about them until eternity Uh, in this society everybody wants all the feminists want the name recognition they want to be the upfront in charge leaders, and they, they want to be in charge. And we have, of course, the Jezebel ministry and the false prophetess ministry, when what we need are handmaidens. These are the women that come in and do things in the spirit realm, and you never know who they are. All you see is their hands break forward and then break back. All you know is their presence there, and, and you see this so beautifully played out around the world, just not so much in America. 
We have to raise up a tremendous generation of handmaiden. Women already have it in them to work so diligently. Just do it for somebody else. But you have to first master yourself. And then once you master that, you're able to move on and help others in the kingdom. Remember that our modern Western culture mocks servile-minded people. But try to imagine the outcome of God's people without the testimony of the following women. Try to imagine that. And we're going to look at Esther. We're going to look at uh, Mary. We're going to look at Phoebe. Try to imagine the outcome of God's people if uh, these ladies had been westernized. Handmaidens are not weak. It takes great strength to be a handmaiden of the Lord. We have to get rid of the ego. We have to get rid of the desire for name recognition. We have to say, Lord, if it builds the kingdom, I don't care what it is. We have to give up all desire, even the desire for laziness in another nap. It takes great strength to be a handmaid in the Lord. 1 Peter 3, 6, and I believe this is the New American Standard Version, says, Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children, talking to women now, you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. So it doesn't say fear doesn't come. It just says don't let fear scare you. It almost speaks to fear as a person. And think about what that's saying. Fear comes, but you don't have to be afraid of it. Fear can come and rest upon you, but you don't have to uh, submit to it. You can resist it. It says, if you do well and are not frightened by any fear. Proverbs also says, be not afraid of sudden fear. Fear is this person. It's a spirit we know, the spirit of fear. And it will try to come upon you and get you to buy into it. And that's called being affrightened or scared. Fear comes and visits every one of us. We just reject it. I say, no, I just, I just reject this thing. Just do it afraid and watch God anoint your first footstep and your next footstep. But if you stay there and submit to fear, you stay. So step up, do what is right, serve, help build the kingdom. Esther, we'll look at Esther first. Her name means star. We even still see her name today in geology, in mineralogy, in the hexagonal crystal group. You have what is called asterism comes from Esther. Asterism is the principle or the, um, the mineralogic property where you have inclusions in a hexagonal crystal structure that allows a star to appear when you shine a light. You take a star ruby or a star sapphire and you polish it into a cabochon, which is the dome, and that has asterism in it. It's from the word Esther, which means star. Her servitude made her a queen. Her servitude, her, the fact that she was a servant, it made her a queen and it saved a nation. We may never save a nation single-handedly, but we can save our family. We can save the neighborhood. We can help save a church just by being the greatest servant. Every one of us, male or female, your ambition by the commandment of Jesus Christ is to be the biggest servant you know. That is the race. And we have some strong servants around here, so this very stiff competition. It doesn't mean you quit. But every one of you, if you're going to fully please Jesus Christ, your number two calling after number one being to be with Jesus, your number two calling is to be a servant. Every one of us ought to aim to be the biggest servant in this local church and the biggest servant in your home. So that means, you know, some of the guys and the ladies around here do a lot of work. You got to outpace them. Paul said, I outwork them all. But as soon as I say that, I know some of you will say, well, I don't really want to rise up to that challenge. That's because you're Cookville. And that's why I preach what I do over and over and over again, because eventually somebody's going to hear it and step up the game. 
if you will be the greatest servant, and we'll see with the story of Esther, she was the greatest servant in all of Persia. It saved the nation. Your laziness saves nobody. Your, your self-justification and your self-excuse saves nobody. You want to save something, serve. Get your hand to the kingdom. It gives you an awesome leg up. When you say, Lord, when you're making intercession, Lord, I'm so busy serving you. I, there's, Lord, there's not a thing you've asked me to do I haven't done. You have to do this for me. It gives you a bold platform in prayer. If you're lazy, you don't have much of a platform in prayer. If you just come to church and, you know, and be a sweet little sheep, that's great, but you don't have much of a platform to intercede or to request things of God. Many times in the Old Testament, the Lord said, I will be found when you seek me with all your heart, and in that day you shall ask of me and I will give it you. And he said in uh, Jeremiah 29, he said, and you will command me and I will hearken to you. Not everybody gets the opportunity. You don't get to command God every day, but there is a place where you have obeyed God and you need something. And he says, ask of me and I will give it to you. Lord, I need you to do this. Done. Lazy Christians never know that. So your family dies, your family fails, and you suffer. I'm talking about being a servant. You don't get to stay the same and be right with God. Amen. Esther had a rough life. So there's no self-pity here today. She was born into slavery, and then she was orphaned. That's a pretty rough upbringing. And let me just say, a slave and an orphan in Persia, you think anything was maybe possibly perpetrated against her virginity? A slave people, no mother or father to look after her. That's just conjecture, but she's a slave of the Persians. She's orphaned. Her mom and dad died. She's raised by her cousin Mordecai. She was taken into the king's harem as he sought out a new king. He, she's taken in. So she obviously she's gorgeous. And who knows what age she was brought into the harem. 12, 13, 14. She's a slave. I mean, she, she's property of the kingdom. And now she's going to be property of the king. I'm sure there was some sexual perversion propagated against her. And she never made excuses. Doesn't make it easy. And it doesn't make it right. But it gives a high example. Esther's qualities. She was submitted she obeyed her uncle Mordecai in all things, even after she became queen. She's the queen, and she still submits to the man that raised her. And he's the one giving her the wisdom of God on how to navigate what it means to be the queen now and what she can do with that position to help the Jews. When she didn't have to be submitted, she still honored her elder. She was courageous. And we're talking about qualities we we ought to have, especially since this is a, a ladies' lesson. You ladies need to pray these things into your life. She was courageous. Esther was prepared to approach the king, who even though it was her husband, she could be killed if he did not extend, extend the scepter out to her. She approached him upon penalty of death in an attempt to save the Jews. She approaches him, and it was a dangerous thing. She had the whole nation pray and fast for three days because if she approached the king... When he, she, he hadn't called her, it was a life and death situation. The book of Esther explains that. And if he looked upon her favorably, even if it was somebody else or anybody approaching him, he could extend the scepter and they could approach and grab a hold of it and come close and sit. Otherwise, if he was in a bad mood, he could look at you and you would be killed. That it was a life and death situation. And on top of that, she knows she's going to ask for him to change the decision he's already made. It took courage. Mordecai rebuked her. And he said, you must do this. This is the famous line for you. You were born for such a time as this. 
to save the Jews. And he said, and don't think you keeping silent will save you. He said, for if you keep silent, you will perish and God will raise up another deliverer. Very strong word. But she was courageous. She was selfless. Hopefully you ladies are hearing this and and you men as well. Submitted, courageous, selfless. Esther did not use her position to insulate herself from her people's impending doom. Rather, she used her position to save her people. And we have to use the position God has given us to save people, to not be ashamed of the gospel. We have to overcome selfishness if we're going to become a handmaiden of the Lord. Again, every one of you ought to aim to be the greatest handmaiden in this local church. Showing up to serve, uh, being a part of as much as you can, teaching the young ladies how to be handmaidens. I've preached it a thousand times. One of the greatest deficits in this region is selfish laziness. And that's why this region doesn't change. But that's why the Lord's having to bring in outsiders because local folks aren't helping the region. And the outsiders are coming in saying, this is, a, this is easy to dominate. This is like a SEAL team taking on the Revolutionary War. Hold on, let me load my musket. Wait a second. Civil War fighting the South. That's why outsiders come in here and they, they advance so readily. Because if you're cookful, you have laziness coursing through your veins. Amen. Cunning. Esther wisely used her favor and her authority to position her cause against the evil Haman's scheme. She was very slick. She was not wicked or manipulative. She was slick. She was cunning. And the Bible uses that term of her. So what are her testimonies? Because we want to look up to these these ladies as role models. Every one of you ladies has patterned your life after somebody. Here are some people God endorses you to pattern your life after. Her testimonies, her pleasant disposition gained her quick favor with Haggai, the king's chamberlain. Do you have a pleasant disposition? Every woman is designed to be gracious and beautiful and isn't just surficial beauty. It's a pleasant loveliness, not to pick on old, old people, but you know, you get to a certain age and, and really Babies all start off looking the same, generally speaking, and people all die in their 85, 90 looking the same, wrinkly, right? So let's take the full end of age for a woman. You know, she looks like a prune and she has blue hair and she's, you know, gravity and age and the sin nature has taken its toll on her body. She's ready to go home. She can be just as beautiful and gracious and lovely as as a 22-year-old maiden of the Lord, because of her attitude, because of the spirit of God upon her. Or you can take the next woman next to her just as old and wrinkly and just be a miserable wretch. So we're not talking about a superficial beauty. We're talking about a beautiful grace, a disposition that even if you were unattractive in your culture's eyes, people would still be drawn to you because you are a gracious, lovely woman. Her pleasant disposition gave her favor. And if you want favor, ladies, drop the feminist Jezebel thing. Be sweet. Be gracious. Be lovely. That's how God designed women to be. Esther was not needy. Ooh, that's a big one. It says that when she came into the harem, she took nothing. She required nothing but what they gave everybody else. Some modern women are just so needy and so picky. And if you gave them ice water, they want a lemon wedge. 
She was not needy, and that gained her more favor. The reason some of you aren't qualified to marry is because you're too needy, and marriage will not fix your neediness. You're drowning looking for somebody to drown with you. No, when, when a man marries a woman, he's not looking to marry a needy woman. He's looking to marry a profound, driven, strong handmaiden of the Lord that can help him fulfill his race. Esther's disposition gained her favor with all them that looked upon her. She's a slave. She's a Jew. She's a lower class of citizen in the Persian eye. And yet, her disposition gained her favor with everybody that she came in contact with. That ought to be every woman's testimony. You know, men are the rough and gruff ones that rock the boat, but even, even a, a woman of God can be a, a beautiful, born-again gospel minister going to hell-bound San Francisco and still have favor with all the homosexuals and all the atheists because she has a beauty and a grace and a demeanor. I mean, you really have to have perverted something in your design to not have favor as a woman everywhere you go. Everybody wants to respect a woman. Everybody wants to respect a gracious lady. And that's really the problem of modern America. We don't have many ladies anymore. Now, we still dress up and put perfume on the pig, but we don't have many ladies anymore. Ladies carry themselves with class. They carry themselves with poise. They don't dress like a bulldog. They carry themselves with an elegance. Even if it's in their workout clothes or even if it's in their scrubby clothes, there's still an, an, an elegance, not an arrogance, an elegance about them. That's one of the things we see in Esther. And she did it even though she was brought up a slave, brought up an orphan, brought up probably sexually raped or molested, being as beautiful as she was now in the harem. Really, that's a hundred women and he's going to figure, he's going to sleep with them and figure out which one he wants next. And yet still keep her poise still looking to her God. We have it made today, and yet we don't make anything of it. Amen. Esther's, Esther obtained grace and favor in the sight of the king and was made queen. You see from the very beginning, everywhere she goes, she has favor, she has favor, she has favor, she has favor. And it wasn't just her beauty that made her queen. It was her disposition, her grace, her servant's heart. Because if, if the king has picked 100 women, I don't remember what the number was, you know they're the finest women in the land. So we're looking at Miss America pageant. Something sets her apart, and it's the inward heart. It's the beauty, it's the grace, it's the disposition, it's the gentleness. Where the king said, you, there's something. I could have any woman in the land. I want you. And it wasn't beauty. Because he had the best. Esther's favor in the eyes of the king gained her a proverbial blank check from the king up to half the kingdom. He said, she said, my Lord, may I ask of you something? He said, absolutely, up to half my kingdom, I'll give it to you today. She said, I don't want half the kingdom. I want my people free. She could have rolled over the Jews and had half the kingdom, but instead she rejected half the kingdom and set people free. You see where the ambition lies. It isn't to be rich or die trying. It was to set people free. What she overcame Excuse me, Esther saved her nation. Esther overcame low estate, shame, selfishness, and fear to deliver her people. It's a tremendous story. Esther is a story worth studying in the Bible over and over and over again. We move on to Mary now. 
in the New Testament. Esther is literally the last woman of the Old Testament, even though the book of Esther is before Psalms. Esther is the story during the Babylonian and Persian captivity up until about 400 years before Christ. So she's the last story of a woman in the Old Testament until you come to the New Testament. Now we have Mary. So we've kind of gone through this thing in chronological order. Now we have Mary, the mother of Jesus Christ. Her name means their rebellion or obstinate. What a name. Somebody was asking me, why, why do they get the names that they get? You never know. Unless the Bible tells us why they called them their names, we don't know. We know that Isaac was called Isaac. His name means laughter because Sarah said, for the Lord has made me to laugh. Therefore, his name was called Isaac. Some people, the Lord gave them their name. Achan in Joshua, his name means troublesome. We don't know why. It fits what he was to Israel, was troublesome. But maybe he was a troublesome child in delivery. Maybe it was a troublesome pregnancy. So we don't know. But for whatever reason, Mary, the mother of Jesus Christ, her name means their rebellion or obstinate. Or maybe it was a prophetic foreshadowing of God's people, their rebellion, their obstinate. And so she gives forth a savior. Her servitude made her the mother of Jesus Christ. Mary was a young handmaiden, but she served God. And the Bible calls her a handmaiden. She was not educated, intellectual, rich, or perfect. Historians tell us she'd have been about 13 or 14. Very young. I mean, that's, uh, that's what, Mackenzie King's age? Um, Libby's age? How old is Libby? 14. That's Libby's age. She wasn't married and had never parented. She'd never been a parent before. She was not experienced. She wasn't like super mom. She wasn't like the Duggar lady who's had experience with 20 kids. She's a newbie at all of this. She's barely into puberty or barely out, excuse me, having passed through puberty. Yet God trusted her to raise his only son. So it wasn't ability. It had to be heart. Her heart of servitude qualified her to be used mightily of God. All people have called this woman blessed, not cursed for being a handmaid. All, all nations, even the Muslims revere Mary. There's even a book in the Koran called Miriam after the mother of Jesus. All people have called this woman blessed. The Catholics take it a little bit too far, but this woman was blessed for being a servant. And I say that over and over again so you don't get all feminist on me or all feminist on the Lord Jesus, that you're called to be a servant. Mary's qualities submitted. And hopefully you're, you're recognizing this over and over again. We're seeing these women are submitted. These women are courageous. These women are selfless. She submitted to the angel of the Lord and did not argue. She said, be it unto me according to your word. She didn't try to reason with it. She didn't try to say, not me, I'm too busy. Don't you know my dreams? Don't you know what I want to do with my college education? She just said, be it unto me even as you have said. She was courageous. She was not concerned about what people would think of her as an unwed mother. She was betrothed, that means engaged. A little bit of a different cultural connotation there, but she was not married and for her to all of a sudden develop the pregnancy and the, 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 the baby bump, as we call it in modern times, uh, and to know that she was betrothed and not wed, it looked bad for both of them. And so it was a severe humiliation for them. But it was almost a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, who for the joy set before them, they despised the shame. Everywhere they went for five months, you know, it was humiliating. They're not wed. They're not wed. They've been fornicating. They're not wed. And only God... And Elizabeth and them and the angels knew the difference. So she was courageous. The Lord had spoken and she courageously received it. 
And she was faith-filled. She was quick to believe the angel's report. She never doubted. Doubt grew 30 years later when her son's in the ministry and she's trying to put all the pieces together. But Mary's testimonies, because of her submission, her courage, and her faith. And again, these are the things we need to be praying in our lives if we're going to be mighty women of God. Just like Esther was submitted, courageous, selfless, and cunning or wise. Her testimonies, she found favor in the eyes of God. We saw that with Esther. What we need more than we need more faith is favor. Dr. Barclay says favor will get more for you than your faith could ever hope. The favor of God just does things you don't even know to ask for. We don't get favor when we're belligerent, westernized feminists. We get stiff-armed. We get rejected. Uh, People fear us, but they don't respect us. People fear Jezebels and lesbians and belligerent feminist types, but they don't respect them. They tiptoe around them because you never know what's going to set them off. But everybody wants to be around a courageous, gracious lady. Every woman secretly wants to be like that woman. And that woman is feared and respected and adored. She was used to prophesy about her place in history and the Savior. She's one of the few people in the Bible that prophesied about Jesus. And she's listed among the men. David prophesied about Jesus. Isaiah prophesied about Jesus. Daniel prophesied about Jesus. Balaam prophesied about Jesus. Here we have a woman prophesying about Jesus. Pretty cool. And this last point, if you stop to think about it, is so eye-opening. Mary is the most unique woman in all of human history. We might say Eve, she and Eve, but mm, Mary. Now, maybe Eve, because she was the first created woman, that, that gives her a unique place, but Mary's more unique, I believe, than even her because of, look at this. Mary is the only person in human history to observe the birth of Christ, the ministry of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, and the birth of the church. She was there, the only one there for all of them, all seven events. That's, think about that. She was there for all of it. God chose a woman to be there for all of it. A 13-year-old handmaiden. Just tell me what to do. When she got to be about 42, she got a little weird. Jesus would have been in his 32nd year of ministry, and she's confused. And she says, tell, tell him, hey, tell, tell my son, his mother and his brother are out here. And the Lord says, who is my mother and who is my brother but those that do the will of my father? And Jesus swats his mama publicly. But think about it. She was 42, 43, and Jesus is 31, 32. Because there's not much age difference between them. See, I'm 40, so that's like me swatting AJ or Kale. And they swat back. It's about a 12-year difference. She overcame embarrassment. Nine months of being pregnant. Giving birth in a lowly stable to be the mother of of Jesus Christ. Tremendous, tremendous story. We, we sometimes look down our nose at Mary leaning against the Catholic idolatry, but there's, she's still a woman of faith. She was still one of the few in the upper room. She, she obeyed Jesus Christ. Whatever waffling and wobbling of faith she had during his ministry, she figured it out. She repented, was there at his crucifixion, and there at the upper room. And our last one is Phoebe. And I like the story of Phoebe. Phoebe is one of the few servants we see In the New Testament, we probably could address Priscilla, uh, Aquila and Priscilla, the husband and wife team. Uh, We might could go back and add that later. But Phoebe's name means radiant. Phoebe, of course, is a very popular Western name now. 
Her servitude earned her a commendation from the Apostle Paul. And we live in a day where uh, we, we need commendations. We live in a day where the preacher ought to be able to commend us to a great testimony. Uh, we live in the West, though, so we live in a day where most preachers' biggest problems come from women. The Jezebel. It's just our culture anymore. When we don't so much give letters of commendation, we give letters of please leave. <laughs> We want to be able to give letters of commendation. Her story is found in Romans 16. She's referred to as a deaconess in, in the Roman epistle. So Paul refers to her as a servant. The Greek word is diakonis in the feminine form. So she was a deaconess at the church of Sincrea, which would have been in Asia Minor. And she was a servant or handmaiden to that church and even to Paul himself. So whenever Paul would venture into Asia Minor, Phoebe would have been one to take care of him. We have no idea how old she was. She might have been elderly. I kind of think maybe she was middle-aged because she was able to make the trip from modern-day Turkey all the way to Rome. You don't do that in your 80s. You probably do that in your 30s, your 40s, or 50s. But it's evident that she's probably either single or a widow because she, she's, if she's married, she's leaving a husband and children behind, and that just doesn't seem to fit. She might have been a widow or just a woman who never married that she might serve the Lord. This kind of submission and servitude caused Paul to command the whole church at Rome to take care of her. And I don't know if I've ever seen that. If I've ever seen a woman come into a church with a letter from an overseeing bishop or overseeing apostle saying, this is a tremendous woman, take up an offering for her right now, and if it's not enough, somebody step up the game and make sure she has everything she needs while she's in your city. Now, a lot of Jezebels want to come in and demand that kind of stuff. We've seen that on Christian television a lot. But this was, she was not committing herself. She was being committed by the apostle Paul because she was a servant. She was a tremendous handmaiden of the Lord. Phoebe's qualities submitted. This is the thing we see over and over and over again with all these ladies. We've looked at seven ladies in these two lessons. She was submitted. Phoebe was submitted to the needs of her local church. Again, she has a name. She was the greatest servant at Sincrea. You as ladies, you ought to aim for this. You ought to be known as the greatest servant in your local church. This is where you may ask somebody, what's my testimony in the church? Am I known as the greatest servant? Am I the one that gets everything moving together? Now, now on one hand, we, we do kind of delegate. We, we spread the burden around here. But there's always going to be somebody that rises to the top. And maybe we have the mighty men or the mighty women. We have a, a group, an entourage of five or ten that are, these are the greatest female servants we have in this church. But that, that's what you ought to aspire to as a Christian. Not your own thing, not your own little kingdom. I mean, it's such a petty kingdom here in Cookville. How long does it take to take care of it? Not long. Then you should come back and take care of the house of God and the servants of God, and the children of God and the new believers. She was the greatest servant at Sincrea. That's why her name is mentioned. That's why we're talking about her this morning. When you're dead, will we talk about you? Will we use you as an example? Or will you just be dead? There are certain people that have died we still preach about around here in a good way. Miss Lola, that was a servant. In her 90s, she didn't so much serve here, she, but she still served the kingdom, passing out tracts and singing at the nursing home in her 90s as a servant. Lazy people we don't talk about, we forget. The Bible says the memory or the remembrance of the righteous is blessed, but the name of the wicked will be blotted out. Nobody remembers lazy Christians when they're dead. 
Their cemetery stones are grown over with weeds and nobody drops flowers there anymore. Birds sit upon their headstone. And that's it. She was courageous. Phoebe traveled from Sincrea to Rome, apparently by herself. Now, there were caravans that came and went, and they were highways, not like our highways, but well-traveled routes. Phoebe's testimony, she is the only female deacon named in the New Testament. She received Paul's full endorsement. Paul trusted her implicitly. It seems like every time he would go to Sincrea and be in that region, he so saw her hand of faithfulness that he ends up trusting her to deliver the Roman epistle to the church at Rome. That would have been something you entrusted with a group of men to do, but he said she'll do it, and nobody will think anything about it. It's a woman traveling. I can trust her with it. She had to earn that, though. Some women in church, you don't even trust them to come to church on a regular basis because they don't. You can't even trust them with money because they don't tithe. You can't even trust them to disciple a young woman because you don't want them to reproduce who they are in the young woman. This woman earned Paul's trust, and you know Paul's standard was through the roof. He trusted her like he did Tychicus and Epaphroditus, Timothy and Titus. This woman had a name among those men just by being a handmaiden. The Roman church was commanded to assist and aid Phoebe. That's how you know you've earned respect at one church when another church is commanded to take care of you in whatever business. She now had the entire Roman church at her disposal. And you know they didn't want to mess it up because if Paul came to town, they'd hear hear about it. Phoebe hand-delivered the Roman epistle. Pretty cool. I mean, how would you like, you'd be able to say like John, we have, I've tasted and handled of the word of God. I'm sure she didn't even know what it was because, you know, she could have been reading it along the highway. It probably took her a month to get there and got down to the very end. What? He's talking about me? You know, she didn't write it in herself. Like, here's Phoebe, one awesome gal. Give her everything she wants. Love Paul. (laughs) You know, they would have spotted that quickly. We want to be like a Phoebe. She overcame selfishness, fear, and laziness to serve the early church. Notice that all these ladies had to overcome fear. You will too. Insecurity, self-esteem issues, you have to overcome it if you're going to have a great name in the kingdom. Fear is no excuse to to cut your race short. Fear is no excuse to disqualify yourself. Fear is no excuse to quit. Men have to deal with fear too. We have not been given the spirit of fear. We've been given victory over the spirit of fear. Therefore, we curse it to hell and we march on. And sometimes we just do it afraid. You ought to find something you're afraid of and do it. Something little. We do this with our girls. When we find out that they're scared of something, guess what? We're going to overcome it. We're going to pet the frog. We're going to hold a ladybug. We're going to pet a dead squirrel. We're going, I don't know, everybody's fears are different. My girls are not afraid of anything athletic, nothing heights-wise. They do stuff that makes us afraid when it comes to physics and athleticism. But come to a bug or a, a mayfly or even a bumblebee. My wife said the other day, yesterday I guess, they were sitting on the back porch just sitting and one of those giant carpenter bees kind of had them cornered on the porch and was just going back and forth. And the girls just sat there and hunkered and screamed in terror at, a, at a, a bee. And so my wife comes running because she thinks somebody's dying. And here are these two little athletic girls and a little bitty bee the size of their thumb has them pinned down, tormenting them. Unacceptable. So my wife said, both of you get up right now and swat at that bee. We are not going to be afraid of a bee. 
Some of you let your fears command your life, and that's why you don't change. Man, fear is nothing. It's a puff of vapor. Drive through it. It Just drive through it. Watch it wisp around you. But when you're convinced that that puff of vapor is a brick wall, you'll just say, sit there and leak oil. No, man, just drive through that thing and, hey, God, have mercy what's on the other side because you can't see it. You're going to plow right through it. Shouldn't have put a cloud of fear in my way. Last page, interview with the real witch. We covered this in the last lesson. I want you to see this. I've taught you over and over again that there are nine principles in the Satanic Bible, the first of which is do as thou will. Do as thou will. And uh, that's what unfortunately hurts many Christians today is they have a satanic principle in their heart. They're going to do what they will. That is also the theology of lawlessness. The law of lawlessness says I will do what I want. In a 2012 interview, ChristianPost.com asked former witch and Christian convert S.A. Tower the following question. What drew you to a witch's lifestyle? So this former witch, now born-again believer, says, For me personally... The appeal was self-empowerment. Doesn't that sound like modern feminism? We don't want self-empowerment. We want God empowerment. We want Holy Ghost empowerment. And the feminine aspect of witchcraft. Isn't it interesting? Witchcraft has a feminine personality. The lifestyle enabled me the freedom to make my own decisions according to how I saw fit. That is so many Christians today. And it gave me the ability to put those changes into action through magic. I became what I wanted to through sorcery. I think a lot of people are looking for a hands-on spirituality where they can incorporate their own will rather than God's will. People want to incorporate their will over God's will. We live in a me-focused society that's all about what I want. Part of it is the fault of churches because Christianity should not be a spectator religion. So I might say, if all you do here is come and sit and maybe serve in one department, you're tracking more towards witchcraft than you are Christianity because you're, you're just still kind of hovering in the spectator zone. You need to be more involved in the kingdom. We are all part of the body, and each of us has a significant part in the whole church. Powerful words from a former witch who is now a daughter of Jesus Christ. May the Lord Jesus help us and help every woman become a mighty handmaiden of the Lord. Amen. Father, we thank you for these lessons. Bless these that are here. Bless these that listen to this podcast or pod school in the future. May the women of God become mighty handmaidens and advance this kingdom. Give us victory over fear in Jesus' name. Amen.